Mark chapter 5, and beginning our reading at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and he entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Last time we looked at a well-known miracle in Mark's gospel, a miracle where Jesus calmed the storm. You remember that Jesus had been instructing uh, the crowds uh, on, the, on the side of the Lake of Galilee. He was sitting in a boat and he had been teaching them and he had taught them many parables. But then Jesus had instructed, Jesus had initiated the move to cross over the Lake of Galilee. He was really leading his disciples uh, uh, into this storm. But while they were in this storm, the disciples came to Jesus and awoke him, uh, crying out, do you not care that we're going to perish? They were asking Jesus to do something. And Jesus did. Uh, Jesus stood up and uh, he rebuked the wind and he uh, told the sea to be still and we are told that there was a great calm it was an amazing miracle and it shows us something of the power uh, of jesus christ that he is able to do and he embodies the very power of god himself but now as we come to mark chapter 5 uh, we come to the destination of their crossing of the lake of galilee 
They are coming to a region that is known as the Gerasenes or as the Gadarenes. Uh, but either way, it is referring to a region on the east side of the Lake of Galilee. And this morning we want to look at not a well-known uh, miracle, perhaps, but rather at a strange miracle. A strange miracle that takes place where Jesus uh, heals a man who is demon-possessed, and how Jesus goes about doing that. And what we want to see is, is that those who have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan, are to be those who declare the praises of God to others. And we want to look at these verses in three thoughts. We want to think of, first, the demon-possessed man. Secondly, about the deliverance that Jesus brings. And then thirdly, about the declaration of praise. Well, first, we have a description of the, the demon-possessed man himself. We're told in the opening verses that uh, something of the sorrowful condition of this man, uh, that he is described in a sorrowful state in several different ways. A principle among them is, is the fact that he is described as having an unclean spirit. And as you trace Mark's gospel, Mark himself connects the two realities of an unclean spirit with demon possession. It's just another way of saying the same thing. But here it's an appropriate way because it is highlighting something of his unclean state. Uh, that this man who is possessed by a demon is unclean uh, uh, as a result. He is one who is under the power of demonic activity. And this is not the first time in Mark's gospel that Mark has mentioned demon possession or casting out of demons in Jesus's ministry. And evidently Mark uh, believed it was an important aspect for understanding the person and work of Jesus that Jesus's mission was one of deliverance uh, from the power of uh, the realm of Satan, that Jesus was active against something as much as he was active for something. And so here uh, we are told that once again, Jesus is casting out someone who had a demon. And we also have to bear in mind something of the significance of this moment, because as Jesus is casting out demons, it is as a result of an intensifying of the conflict. The Son of God has come into this world to establish the kingdom of God. And as a result, the kingdom of Satan is intensifying or escalating its resistance and its opposition to God's reign. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there is a much greater manifestation of demonic activity uh, during the reign or during the time of Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, it is a, an intensifying or an escalating of the conflict uh, between the rule of God and the efforts of Satan. But all of that uh, to say is, is that we have here a man who is under uh, the power of a demon. And that might sound uh, strange to our modern ears. Uh, we live in a time where we uh, tend to emphasize the material uh, to the neglect or to the downplaying of the spiritual. And that's part of the result of where we have come in history. But oftentimes people focus so much on the material that there is a, an air of suspicion regarding anything that they cannot see or anything they cannot touch. Uh, that's uh, uh, the fruit of our own philosophy and, and where the Western world has come. 
But before we write these events off as fanciful, uh, we need to think uh, something that, about something that Vern Poitras, a theologian in the States, points out. He says, a focus on the material cannot prove that what is material is the only thing that exists. And what he's saying there is he's saying that our focus on the material limits our ability to know things. And if we focus only on what we can see and on what we can touch and what we can taste, what uh, these senses, if we focus only on the material, it's not going to be able to prove anything beyond itself. It's a very limited scope for knowledge. And really, it is, uh, it is ignoring the fact of whether or not the, the real question is, is whether the Bible itself is trustworthy and whether Jesus knows what he's doing here as he encounters this uh, demonic realm. It's better off if we recognize that all human knowledge uh, is limited and that what we need to do is live in light of God's revelation. And so really it comes back a step before by asking, can we trust the Bible? Is God's word reliable? What do we understand about Jesus? And then through that understanding, then we approach this whole question of demons or of evil spirits and understand it in that light. We don't want to make the mistake of assuming something is not true simply because it does not conform to our expectations. So a person may assume that the only thing is material in this world, but that's an assumption that is being made. And our assumptions may be wrong. And we need to, re one, realize the assumptions that we have when we come to the Bible. But then more than that, we need to see how the Bible is challenging our assumptions. And that if our assumptions are faulty, we will come to wrong conclusions. So here is a man who is described as having an unclean spirit. He is someone who is under demonic uh, oppression. And uh, that highlights something of his own sorrowful condition. But another uh, aspect of his sorrowful condition is the fact that he is described as being in an unclean land. And you see that in a couple of different ways. First, because of the, the region, of the territory that he's in. He's in the land of the Gadarenes, or the land of the Gerasenes. Uh, that is, he's in an area that is um, primarily Gentile uh, lived in. That's why we see uh, pigs uh, being uh, farmed. Uh, for the Jew, the, the pig was an unclean animal. And so this is a, a Gentile uh, area that is being referred to. But more than that, this man is living in an unclean land or an unclean area in terms of where he's at with the tombs. Uh, you notice that in verse 3, it says that he lived among the tombs. That is, he lived amongst the dead. Uh, this is a man who has been cut off from society. This is a man who is living uh, devoid of interaction with others. Uh, and we are told that he was living uh, where the dead were buried uh, as a result. Uh, that evidence is not only his uncleanness, uh, but also his uncleanness before God. In the Old Testament, if a person came into contact with the dead, they were described as being ceremonially unclean. And that meant that uh, they had to go through a process in order to be washed or to be declared clean again. 
That process meant that they had to be cleansed with water on the third and on the seventh day. And if they didn't, then they remained unclean and they would be cut off from the people of God. And so here is this man who is living amongst the dead and he is in contact uh, with the dead as a Jew would perceive it because he's at a cemetery and he would be declared and viewed as unclean because he has not been uh, ceremonially cleansed. So we see something of his state as being unclean before God, both in the sense that he is oppressed by the demonic, but also in the fact that he is one who is uh, unclean, even ceremonially. And then thirdly, we see this man's sorrowful state in terms of his own destructiveness. Uh, It highlights there in verses 4 and 5 that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. If you uh, use the, the King James translation, that word subdue is translated as tamed. And that's a, a very faithful translation because that's the way the word is used. It's used to describe the taming of animals. In other words, these people had tried to control the man, but he would not be brought under their control. He would not be one who would be restrained. And instead, we see his uh, uh, explosive uh, uh, nature in the breaking apart of the chains. So he was one that would not be subdued, but instead he was a threat to others. That's why they were trying to chain him, presumably. But more than that, he is not only a, a threat to others, but he's a danger to himself. It tells us that he was not only constantly shouting or crying out, but also that he was cutting himself with stones. And we are given here something of a description of the cruelty of what it is to live under the reign of Satan, what it is to live under the kingdom of darkness. Because to live under the the realm and the power of Satan is to be one who is unclean before God. But more than that, it is descriptive of one who is bent on their own destruction. They are living in such a way that brings about their own undoing. And that's what's so sad and sorrowful about this man's condition. He is one who is oppressed by this demonic activity. But as a result, we're seeing this man bent on destroying himself, cutting himself with stones, shouting out and crying, secluded from society as a result of his oppression. And it becomes something of a description of what it is to be under the power of Satan. But we are told uh, not only about the man's uh, demonic state, uh, but we're told as well about the deliverance that comes. Notice in verse 6 that it tells us there, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That's a surprising statement. When you look at what he says next in verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the, God, son of the most high God? We see something here of a torment in the person, that he feels compelled to run to Jesus, but at the same time, he cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Uh, There's this uh, torment that is going on uh, in the man. But notice as he cries out to the man, he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The tormenting here is one of a great or an intensified torment and is oftentimes used to refer to eternal destruction. 
And in Matthew's gospel, it is describing the demons say, uh, do you come to destroy us before the time? In other words, the demonic, uh, the demons here have a rec- an understanding that there will be a day of reckoning, uh, but they think it is premature. And here the demon is appealing uh, to God. I adjure you uh, by the name of God, uh, do not torment me. So there is this uh, recognition that even as the demonic appeal or uh, come to Christ, this isn't the conflict of equals. This isn't uh, a good versus bad, and they're on equal levels and eternally in conflict with one another, as is sometimes viewed. But rather, this is a conflict in which there is a clear superior, because they address Jesus as the son of the Most High God. They recognize that they are inferiors as they approach Jesus. They recognize that they don't have power over Jesus. And that is the relationship as this whole encounter takes place. So they come to Jesus and uh, Jesus is uh, telling them to come out of the man uh, as he addresses them as an unclean spirit. But Jesus in verse 9, he says, what is your name? And they replied, or he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. The word legion uh, is a military term. It is uh, a term made reference to the Roman army. And it was referencing the largest troop unit in the Roman army. So this is a significant description because when we hear the word legion, it's not just saying many, but rather what is being communicated here to Jesus is, is that Jesus is not just confronting one demon, he is confronting an army of the demonic. And so this, this, this battle, this conflict here is between Jesus and an army of demons. Uh, but it highlights uh, the, the battle or the, the conflict between them. As mentioned, the word legion is the largest troop unit in the Roman army, somewhere around 5,600 soldiers. And the emphasis there is, is that there is an army of demons uh, in this man. The man then was occupied under the power of the demonic stronghold, and it is with the demon that Jesus must deal with. Notice that, that Jesus is dealing with the the demons here before he can deal with the man. Their request uh, is, uh, in this encounter, uh, they ask Jesus uh, not to be sent out of the country, uh, but rather to be sent to a herd of pigs. And Jesus gives them permission, again showing his control over the situation, uh, his superiority over the the army of demons. And this is the strange part of the miracle, uh, because we might wonder, why does Jesus uh, allow this? Why does Jesus uh, uh, permit this? But Jesus gives them permission to go into this great herd of pigs. And it was uh, a herd of pigs numbering or of uh, around uh, 2,000. And when they did, we're told that the herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank and then they were drowned in the sea. Now, we might sit here and we might think to ourselves uh, that we feel pity for the the pigs. Uh, Our instinctive reaction might be to, to feel sorry for the pigs who were destroyed as a result of this incident. But really, our focus is meant to be on the man who was delivered from demonic oppression. That really, we should realize that 
the value of 2,000 pigs does not compare with one human being made in the image of God. That might upset some people, but it's true according to the scriptures. That one who is made in covenant relationship with God, one who is made in the image to bear the glory and righteousness of God, is of greater worth than even thousands of pigs. But the second thing that we should realize from this is is the fact that pigs represented what was unclean. And what is unclean symbolizes sin and death. And so when Jesus tells the demons that they are allowed to go into this great herd of pigs, and then the herd of pigs then goes and rushes to their own destruction, it is a picture of the downfall of the kingdom of darkness. It is a picture of uh, the destruction of sin and death itself. And so there is something that Jesus is drawing attention to, even as he allows these demons uh, to bring about their own request. The day of their eternal destruction has not yet come. And yet Jesus here gives a picture of that judgment uh, through their destruction. So uh, here we are given a, a picture that conveys the defeat of Satan's stronghold. But ultimately, Jesus' defeat of the kingdom of Satan is something that is accomplished at the cross of Christ. Uh, The deliverance from evil powers is ultimately accomplished by the death of the Son of the Most High God. As it says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So if we're going to understand what the kingdom of God is, Jesus comes into this world. He declares that he is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is not only something positive, it is also something that is negative. It is a deliverance unto something, but it is also a deliverance from something. That it is a deliverance from the reign of Satan. That it is a deliverance from the power of darkness. Now, we may be sitting here and we may not be oppressed in the same way that this man was oppressed by demonic activity. And we should be thankful for that. And yet at the same time, we can recognize the teaching of Scripture that everyone by nature is under the power of the rule of the evil one. As it says in 1 John 5, that by nature we are living under uh, the uh, oppression and under the direction of the, uh, the power of Satan himself and that we need to be delivered from that because not only are we unclean before God but that we are opposed to God's reign but Jesus came into this world to deliver us from that allegiance to deliver us from that stronghold and that's what the cross accomplishes And by the giving of his spirit, he renews the will of his people so that they now delight to live under the reign of his grace. So the deliverance here is a deliverance from, a deliverance from the power of darkness. And it is also described as a deliverance unto. Notice that in verses 14 and 15. It says there, the herdsmen uh, fled and told it in the city and the people came to see what had had happened. And when they, uh, when they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Not only was he delivered from being oppressed by this demon, but now he is delivered unto a different state of mind. He's described here as being clothed and in his right mind. Perhaps for the first time in his life, 
he is able to think and to reason rightly. This man is now in a different state. And as Luke highlights in Luke's account of this same event, Luke says he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. What is the posture of one who is in their right mind? What is the posture of one who is being reasonable? They are in a relationship with Jesus. They are in a position where they are listening to Jesus. That they are no longer living in hostility to Jesus, but now they are willing to receive what Jesus is saying. And so there is this great change that has come over this man. Now that the demons have been removed, he finds himself inclined uh, to associate with Jesus. Uh, And so uh, there is this uh, marked difference in the man. And that'll be true in anyone who has been delivered from sin. Anyone who has been delivered from uh, the oppression of sin and the weight of its guilt. As we were uh, looking at in Psalm 38, if a person has known not only the reality of evil, but has known the reality of deliverance from that evil, they will be those who will be inclined to be near to Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we know something of that deliverance ourselves? Do we know what it means to be delivered from our sins, to realize I am a sinner and that I am unclean before God and that scripture teaches that by nature I am living in rebellion to the kingdom of God and that I need to be changed from the inside out? Do I know the work of God's grace So that now I am inclined to embrace Jesus and his rule over me. That was true of this man here. He had been changed and he was now sitting at the feet of Jesus. So there is the description of the man. A man who is oppressed. A man who is unclean. A man who is set on destroying himself. There is the deliverance. He was delivered from uh, his state of uncleanness and oppression. And he was delivered unto a right frame of mind. He was delivered unto sitting at the feet of Jesus. But then thirdly, we are given the declaration. In verses 16 and following, we are told that the people eventually came to hear what had just happened. The herdsmen went and told the townspeople and the people in the country what they had uh, seen and witnessed. And we are told that when the people came, uh, they uh, saw what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And in verse 17, it tells us, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. All of this because they were afraid. At the end of verse 15 there, you see it. They saw the man sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now think back. There was the miracle of Jesus calming the storm. You remember that the disciples were afraid that they were about to die. And then Jesus took away the storm. And instead of their fears being subsided, we are told that the disciples became greatly afraid. Their fears intensified. And the reason was is because they had, they had come to realize that they were standing in the presence of one who had control over nature. That the power and presence of God was in their midst. And they were filled with fear. But now we are told that these people likewise see the power and works of Jesus. And they too are filled with fear. But it's a fear that does not attract them to Jesus. But rather that repels them from Jesus. They want to have nothing to do with Jesus. 
Sometimes people will say that the thing that keeps them from embracing Christianity is just not enough evidence. That if they saw a work of God, if they saw a miracle, then they would believe. Here are the townspeople who are face to face with this man. And they cannot ignore the fact that they see a change in him. They knew him. That's why they had tried to subdue him. That's why they had chained him and put him in shackles. That's why in Matthew's gospel it tells us that they could not pass that way. The people of the town knew about this man. They avoided him. But now they're confronted with the fact that a change has happened on account of Jesus. But rather than drawing them to Jesus, they're repelled from Jesus. They want Jesus to leave, depart from us, go away. Why is that happening? Well, one reason we might highlight is, is the fact that the, the herdsmen had lost their, sheep, their, their pigs. They had lost uh, their, a great many assets in this whole event. And perhaps they thought the costliness of it all uh, was better to get rid of Jesus than to allow something like this to endure. But notice it tells us that all the townspeople, not just the herdsmen, that they all wanted Jesus to leave. And so it can't be just that they lost a great many pigs, economic loss. There has to be more that is going on here. And it seems to be that the fact that they are being confronted with this demon-possessed man who had been changed, the fear that it brought upon them, they were disturbed by things that they would have left, rather left untouched. As long as this man was out in the tombs, They could carry on their life, living how they were. But now this whole incident has brought to center, has brought to the fore things that they didn't want to have to focus on. They don't want to have to focus on the demonic. They don't want to have to focus on the fact that there is evil. They don't want to have to focus on the fact that there is a problem and that Jesus has come and brought a solution to it. They want to carry on as things always have been. And so rather than being faced with the reality of what God has done, they just want Jesus to leave. And that can be a problem uh, even today. Uh, That can be a problem that uh, people uh, wrestle with, that people become so set in their ways that they don't want to face the issues of Scripture. They don't want to face the reality of evil. They don't want to face the reality of bondage to sin. And rather than facing Jesus and what Jesus has done, they just want Jesus out. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about these things. Just let us live our lives. And that's like the townspeople here, who in their fear react a very different way than the disciples. Rather than being inclined to Jesus, they become hostile towards Jesus. And there will always be those two responses. And we have to be asking ourselves which one characterizes ourselves. So there's the declaration of the people. They ask Jesus to go away. But there's also the declaration of Jesus. Notice in verses 18 and following, it says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But notice Jesus' answer. He did not permit him. That might seem strange. Here's a man who wants to be a follower of Jesus. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be part of that company, and Jesus won't even let him. But the reason for that is not negative, but positive. It's because this man has an opportunity to be a living testimony 
in the region where he is. That rather than following Jesus and having less effect, the change in this man's life will be a living testimony to those that he lives with. And so Jesus tells him, go to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he has shown on you. And so this man now, who has had this great change in his life, can now declare to his friends, the people that know him, what God has done. He can testify uh, these things to them and advance God's work that way. And so we are told that when he went, notice it tells us not just that he told them about what the Lord had done, but the Lord's work is expressed in and through Jesus. In verse 20, it says, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that is the wider region, how much Jesus had done for him. It's, it's Jesus who is doing the work of God. To speak of the Lord's work was to speak of Jesus. And so it should be in the life of all of us who have been delivered from sin. As we were uh, saying before the service, you don't have to go off to uh, some other part of the world in order to be a faithful ambassador of Christ. That where you are, where the Lord has placed you, as you, as you bear witness to those with whom you rub shoulders with, those are the people that are going to be able to see whether there's been a change in your life. What has the Lord done for you? Has the Lord brought a change in your life? What mercy has God shown to you? This man could explain it. And so if we profess to be Christians, we should be resolved to tell others about the grace and mercy of God. We should want to make it known to those with whom we live with that these things are true, that they too would know the mercy of God themselves. And so as J.C. Ryle says, do you have anything to tell others about? Can you testify about God's mercy? What can you say about God's mercy to someone else? If we have experienced it, then we can declare it. Then we can celebrate it and cause others to uh, take part.